G'day and welcome to the City on a Hill podcast. I'm Guy, Senior Pastor of City on a Hill, a movement of churches across Australia united around the central mission of knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. Whether you're on your morning commute or sitting down with a warm cup of coffee, I hope this message fuels your faith, hope and love. And while we're here, let me encourage you to prayerfully consider supporting this ministry. You can do that by heading to cityonahill.com.au. God bless. Look forward to connecting soon. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him, and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month, till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces, and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script, and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus, and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces, with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation 
to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Morning, everyone. Let's come to God's word and, and let's pray together as we do that. Father, we pray this morning that our hearts would be open. We pray, Lord, that you would show us more of who you are, more of your plans for your world. We pray, Lord, that you would encourage us. And we pray that now the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, in 2001, um, I had the opportunity to serve um, with the commandos in East Timor. At that time, East Timor was a war zone. Uh, it, was, it was obviously a war zone. Uh, there was destruction and mayhem everywhere. And I lived in a town called Balabo, and I lived for seven months in a tent. And about 100 metres from the tent where I lived, there was a burned-out concrete house. And the locals called that house the Kissing House. And one day I said to one of the, the locals, why do you call that the Kissing House? And he, he took me and he showed me uh, one of the walls, the concrete walls, where there were red stains. So we, we called the Kissing House because under the, the period of the militia, they took young girls, they doled them up with lipstick and heavy makeup, they raped them, and then they bashed their heads against that wall in what they called a militia kiss. They then shot them and dumped them. As I stood looking at that concrete wall in a burned out house, it felt like I was, I was gazing into the maw of raw evil. Evil, but that's out there, isn't it? It's not here. I mean, in Geelong, we focus on our, on our barbecues, on our family gatherings, our social media, our trips to the beach, our work, our family, all of the, the aspects of daily life. And probably if we ask one another, do you believe in evil? We'd say, yes, we do believe in evil, but it's somewhere out there. It's not here. Evil is out there. And when evil comes, and when we experience it, it usually catches us by surprise. That's what happens here in chapter 3 of Esther. If you've been with us in this series, you'll know that things have been going well in some senses. I'm not going to catch you up on where we are on the, on the last three chapters, but you'll know things have, have been moving, events have been happening. It's now nine years since King Ahasuerus or King Xerxes, the great party and the clash with Vashti where she's exiled before his war against the Greeks. It's now five years since Esther was made the new queen of Persia. It's almost four years since, as we heard last week in a footnote, which I didn't explain, that um, a plot against the king's life was foiled 
because of information that Esther's uncle Mordecai received. It's almost four years since that's happened. And then comes verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, After these things, the king promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Essentially, he's become the prime minister of the greatest empire on earth. And the king's command is, you bow to Haman, my new prime minister. And everybody does except one. One person refuses to bow and his name is Mordecai, Esther's uncle. So verse 3, the king's servants are at the king's gate, said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's word would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. The text says, why? Why will Haman not bow down to the king? We know from history, we know from the book of Daniel, that bowing in the king's presence was, everybody did it, Jews included. It wasn't a religious um, act or observance. It was, it was a little bit like curtsying to the king. Whatever you think of the monarchy, most people out of courtesy will curtsy to King Charles. It's like that. So why did Mordecai refuse? Why? Well, I think the text tells us, it says, because he had told them that he was a Jew. So well, what's the significance of him being a Jew if other Jews are bowing Well, verse 1 tells us the reason, I think. It says, the king promoted Haman the Agagite. So, well, thank you, Andrew. That really helps me understand. Uh, Let me explain. Stay with me. Haman is a descendant of a man called Agag. Agag was a king of a, a people who were the Amalekites. There's a lot of history that goes back there. Hundreds of years before Israel were taken by God out of Egypt. You can read about that in the book of Exodus. And on the way out, the people of the Amalekites fell upon the stragglers, upon the weak, upon those who were the sick and at the end, and they murdered them. And in uh, Exodus chapter 17, you, you can read about this. God tells Moses that from this point, because of this action, God will be at war with the people of Amalek from generation to generation until they are finally destroyed. Now, in the time of King Saul, which you can read about in the books of of one and two kings, one Kings and one Samuel, King Saul is the, uh, the Israelite king at that time, and he is told by God to continue to wage war against the people of Amalek. And he does. He wages war against them and their king. He has a win. They win. They capture King Agag himself, the king of the Amalekites. And Saul wants to spare his life out of a generosity. And God's prophet Samuel says, no. God's command is that he will be executed. And he does it himself. Now, are you getting the picture? Mordecai, we're told in other parts of Esther, is a direct descendant of King Saul. Haman is a direct descendant of King Agag. So hundreds of years after those events, in the court of the Persian king, two old and bitter enemies face off. One, the enemy of God's people and the opposers of his covenant. The other, a member of God's covenant people in exile in Persia. Mordecai will bow to a pagan king 
No problems. But not to Haman. And so we have this scene where where everybody else, you can see a whole lot of backs bowed before, one man standing up, eyeballing Haman across the top, and his name is Mordecai. And as the text says, it creates a scene. The king's officials say, what's the problem here? Why aren't you bowing? They go to Haman and say, Haman, look, the king's given this orders. Everyone bows to you except this one guy, Mordecai. And verse 6 tells us, gives us an insight into Haman's character. He goes like, well, it's not enough to get even with just one man, Mordecai. Mordecai's a Jew. I'm taking out all of them. The, the way this insult against me will be avenged is I will murder the entire Jewish people in the province, the whole Assyrian Empire, Persian Empire. And verse 7, he begins to plan. He casts lots, or the, the Persian word for a lot is per. And um, the lots, as far as we know, were pretty much identical to our playing dice that we, you have in your game of Monopoly or whatever you have. But these dice were used with occult purpose, like a, like a seance almost. And, and Haman and his, and his cronies get together and they, they roll these dice and they work out through these sort of occult means. They go through the 365 days of the year and eventually they arrive at the 12th month and the 13th day in which they will seek to wipe out all the Jewish people in the Persian Empire, which ironically, not accidentally, is the very first day of the Passover feast when God delivered his people from Egypt, now Haman says, on that day, we'll wipe them all out. Men, women, children. And he springs into action. And we see that Haman's not the rising star of Persian politics for nothing. He's clever, he's swift, he's a man of action. He, he goes to the king and he plays him. Uh, he, he says, look, king, there's, there's a disloyal ethnic group in your kingdom. These are troublemakers. And it's time we sort them out. And he says, I'm, I'm just such a good guy that I'm going to pay for this myself. I'll put the money used to wipe him out in the king's treasury. And he offers to pay a truly vast sum of money. Apparently, it's equivalent to about 300 tons of silver. That's tons. 300 tons of silver. I, I tried to get a comparison. It's like tens of millions of dollars. It's hard to get a, an act. It's a lot of money. And he offers to pay it himself. And the mighty King Xerxes, the ruler of this great earth, as he said earlier, he's so easily manipulated. He's like, yeah, whatever, here's my ring. Just go and do it. Make it happen. And he does. The command goes out post-haste through the, the riders right to the, the four corners of the Persian Empire. And the next morning, the Jews wake up. Every Jew in the Persian Empire wakes up and discovers that they're on death row. They're literally on death row. The time is ticking and then we have this scene, it closes out where Haman and the king decide it's time for a few good beers after a day's work. And that's how chapter 3 closes. What we see here is raw evil. Absolute evil. We're speaking here of, of genocide in the, the literal sense of that word. And the question that we ask, is this just some random coincidence? Is it a, a random coincidence? A, a few weeks ago, we saw that God's hand is hidden in the book of Esther. Never once is God's name mentioned in this book. But chapter 3 tells us that there's another hidden hand operating and working, powerful and ancient and utterly evil 
a force that is work, always at work to thwart God's purposes and to destroy God's people. That power and that force, we call it the person and the works of Satan, the devil. And I believe at that very moment when Haman rages, looking at those bent backs and one man, that it's as if the New Testament says, when it speaks of Judas, Satan entered him. And you might say to me at this point, Andrew, do, do we really still believe in the devil? I mean, it, it, you know, that sounds like, like the guy with the, the pointy tail and the horns and that stuff. Like, haven't we moved on? But it, it, is the devil real? And I would say to you, the devil is every bit as real as God Almighty is real. And that's real. He is real. He is evil and he is active and, and we, don't actually, we can actually look in the, the context of in which this book, the book of Esther, comes and we can see that. So, for example, um, come with me to Daniel chapter 10. Uh, this was written in the time of Xerxes' grandfather, King Cyrus. This is what it says. Let me read from, from uh, I'll, if, you, if you've got your, I think it might be on the screen, but I'm, I'm going to skip through it a bit. It says, in those days, I, Daniel was mourning for three weeks, and then we're told an angel comes. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees, and he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand, and you humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. Answer to prayer. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is yet to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is of days yet to come. So do you get the context here? There's this mighty angelic warrior, incredibly powerful He's coming in answer to Daniel's prayer and this warrior tells us that I got held up by 21 days by the prince of Persia. Was that, the, the, was that Cyrus? No. We're talking here of, of a powerful, evil, angelic being who seems to be given authority for the province of per Persia. It's a demonic being. Now, scripture leaves us no doubt that there are demonic forces at work in our world and throughout the Bible, and while we don't see them posing for a portrait in Esther, they're there. Make no mistake. And not just out there in ancient Persia, not just out there in East Timor either, but here, in our country, in our little old city of Geelong, and even more personally, in your heart and my heart. This is real. Satan is active and he implacably opposes the word of God and the people of God. So that's, in one sense, Esther chapter 3, we see raw evil. And underneath it, we see the forces, the demonic forces are not mentioned, but they're clearly at work. So I want to I look with you now at four implications from this, four, four applications. Number one, Satan hates the Jewish people. Satan hates the Jewish people. I encourage you to read the history of the Jewish people if you never had what you will see when you read it is one long cry of suffering, of pogroms, of persecutions, of injustices, of murders, of exiles. 
of concentration camps. It's a history that stretches right back into the depths of history and it is more brutal and more tragic than that of any other people on the face of the earth. You can read about it in history. And my question this morning, when I say that Satan hates the Jewish people, do you think this is a coincidence? Do you think it's a coincidence, just an accident? Do you think, for example, it was a coincidence when in 1943 and 1944, the German army is locked in a death struggle on the Eastern Front against the Russians, and the German army generals are crying out for more trains to get troops to the front, and the answer comes back, no. We have more important tasks for those trains than transporting troops to the front. You know what those task was? Transporting women and children and infants to concentration camps to be incinerated alive. You tell me that's a coincidence. Do you think it's a coincidence that uh, the Ge- it's a coincidence that Hamas spent decades and billions of dollars building infrastructure and tunnels when they could have tried to turn Gaza into a, a Mediterranean holiday resort? Do you think that's a coincidence that they break across the border and kill a thousand people? Do you think it's a coincidence that Hezbollah in the north sends rockets day by day by day? That Iran sponsors terrorism around the world against one particular people group? You think this is just an accident of history? Or do you think somehow it's their fault? That they bring it on themselves? No, Satan hates the Jews. Satan hates the Jews in the book of Esther and he hates them now. And Romans, I believe, the book of Romans by the Apostle Paul, a Jewish rabbi, leaves us little doubt about why Satan hates the Jewish people. Well, in one sense, the Jewish people are the bearers of the covenant and the promises and the prophets. The Jewish people are the people of Jesus. They're the people of the apostles. They're the people of most of the New Testament that you read. Satan has a long and bitter memory as he looks back. He holds a grudge. But more than that, Satan knows that God is not finished with them either. And you might say, well, yeah, I think God is finished with the Jewish people. Really? Read the book of Romans from cover to cover. And especially look at chapters 9 to 11. Listen to what Romans 11.25 has to say about this question. Paul says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it's written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Listen to this bit. As regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. It seems pretty clear. Uh, Paul teaches that one day we will see a revival amongst the ethnic Jewish people that will surpass anything else in history. God's people, God's chosen people of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant, will come to faith in their Jewish Messiah to a level that it could be said that all Israel will be saved. Such will be the extent of that revival. And when he says Israel here, he doesn't mean the church. Exegetically, I mean, that is reading from what the text actually says, that is virtually an impossible reading of the scripture. 
Um, you may not hear it read, read often, but actually scholars from a wide variety of, of, of uh, backgrounds from Reformed right through to Pentecostal have kind of said, like, you can't really read Romans and come up with that interpretation. People have tried over the years, but you're reading into the Bible what you think it should teach, not what it actually says. Very clearly, this is speaking about the Jewish people. And what we should see here is, and we should make no mistake, that the Agagites of our world are still raging. That there is still a real and vicious hatred for the Jewish people. You might not know this, but um, children that were going into the gas chambers wrote H on both their shoes. Some of them. You know why? You know who the first H was? It was for Haman. The second H was for Hitler. There are Agagites that are still raging. There's war now in the land of Israel and there will be more wars against the Jewish people before the end. Satan hates the Jewish people. He always has and he always will. Now, what's the application for us here? Because I know that most of us are not Jewish. Very few of us are Jewish. Are we Gentile Christians? What's the application? Well, I think the application from this is that if, if, hate and hate someone, if Satan hates someone, we should have the opposite approach. So we should love the Jewish people. Now, the great majority of Jewish people in this moment do not follow Christ, the Messiah. They are not Christians, and they're not perfect. Uh, some of you have been to Israel. I've been to Israel eight times over the years, not for a long time, but I've been there eight times over the years. I've lived in the Middle East for large periods of time. I've studied this at undergraduate and postgraduate. And let me tell you something, the Jewish state is far from perfect. I've seen uh, Israeli soldiers treat Palestinians in a way that I thought was disgraceful. I've seen the state of Israel also have, have a, a lack of concern for the rights of, of, of Palestinians, Arab people living in the state of Israel that I thought was was very against the Old Testament law, which speaks about concern for the alien and the, and the homeless person or the, 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 the more vulnerable person living within you, in your midst. I've seen those things. I've also seen the state of Israel, um, in part, not, not officially, but in part, persecute Jewish believers in Jesus, make life hard for them. Those things that I have seen. The, the Jewish state of Israel is no more converted than Australia is. It's not perfect. It's really not perfect. But as for me, I will love the Jewish people and I will support the Jewish people and I will support the state of Israel because as Paul says, theirs is the covenant, theirs is the patriarch, theirs are the prophets. I owe them a huge debt of grace. And as I rejoice in my own saving grace through the election, that's nothing that I did to deserve, where I've been taken from darkness and brought to light. As I rejoice in that covenant which God has made with me, which is irrevocable, I remember the covenant he made with the Jewish people, which is irrevocable. It saddens me how throughout Christian history, time and again, Christians have not done this. Paul says, I don't want you to be arrogant I don't want you to be proud in understanding this relationship of Jew and Gentile. We as a Christian church have not done well. Yes, there's, there's fault on both sides. But throughout history, for the Jewish people living in Eastern Europe, you would know this Easter was the worst time of the year. Because during that time in the churches, they would hear the Jews kill Jesus. 
So out people would go from the churches to the Jewish community and say, well, we're going to make you pay for what you did to Jesus. You were going to read about it. The Christian church has not, in many ways, got a good record on this. And so I think practically what it means for us, it means that Christians, we must fight anti-Semitism wherever we see it. There can be no place for people who claim to be Christians to have any whiff of anti-Semitism about us. And so we need to be very careful how we, we wade into the Middle East when we think of politics. Politics there is complex, I know that. And I said Israel is not somehow this, this perfect shining light that never makes mistakes, but we Christians need to be very careful that we don't unconsciously end up perpetuating anti-Semitism in the standard that we hold Israel to, which is totally different to the standards we hold other nations to. We need to be very careful of this because God's continuing priority has been for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. You can read that in the book of Romans. Paul says the gospel's for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. Um, I love it. One man that got this was Hudson Taylor. You probably know the great missionary to China. You know, the one who led, I don't know, hundreds of thousands probably, people to a saving faith in Christ who really laid a lot of the foundation for what we're seeing in China today. Every year, Hudson Taylor would send a check to the CMJ, uh, the Christian or the church's mission or ministry to Jewish people. That's the organization I'm working with later this year in Jerusalem. And on that check, he would write, first for the Jew. And then the, the head of the, Christian, uh, the church's ministry to the Jews would write a check back for the same amount and say, and then for the Gentile. But there was a recognition that this is how God operates, that God is not finished with the Jewish people. Satan hates them, we should love them, and we should seek to reach them with the news of Jesus, their Messiah and ours. Lest we find ourselves on the wrong side of God's other enduring promise, way back in Genesis, which says, those who blessed you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. Let's be on the side of blessing. So firstly, Satan hates the Jewish people. Secondly, Esther 3, Satan hates the church. If Satan hates the church, it hates the Jews, he hates the church even more. The enemy rages against the covenant people saved by Jesus and brought into the light to shine his light into a world of darkness until he comes. Satan hates the church. He hates it. He nurses and gnaws and hones his hatred of the church until it's at a fine edge. And you say, is, is, that, is that really true? I mean, we feel pretty secure in our post-Christian West still. Satan hates the church and he's active. You know that in the 20th century, one source that I, I looked at Actually, many sources will agree on this, but around about 300,000 Christians were executed for their faith every year for the entire 20th century. 300,000. Don't think that Satan's hatred of the church has cooled with time. Satan continues to harass the world's nation or to harness the world's nations against God's people through the depraved mind of its leaders, just as it did in the time of Esther. This can be communism, this can be Muslim fundamentalism. Let, let, let me get really personal here. This can be a little Dan Andrews in the state of Victoria. 
Uh, apologies if, if you're a Labor voter, but if you might remember in 2022, uh, what happened in regard to Andrew Thorburn, the Essendon Football Club and our church, that's not a coincidence. That's the actions of the evil one stirring up opposition against God and his people through the actions of a little antichrist. And Romans, if you read the book of Revelations, you see that God's not done yet. And neither is the devil. And there's more persecution still to come. Now, now for some Christians, this, this application of, God, of the devil hating the church, is, it's frightening. Um, the reality of the devil's power can be overwhelming. And, and maybe you've met Christians, and I, I certainly have met Christians, where they see the devil at work in every little thing. You know, like the wheat picks tasted bad this morning, you know, or the milk had gone off in the fridge, or, or you know, there's, there's a devil at work, there's a demon at work under everything. Um, so sometimes, you know, the, people can read the reality of the devil and their response can be, I'm going to read the newspaper in one hand and I'm going to, I'm going to read the Bible in the other and I'm going to identify, you know, like uh, Satan's work with every democratic president of the United States and I'm going to, and then what do I do? Well, I, I'm going to build a bunker in my garage, I'm going to get canned goods and I'm going to break out the old left behind movies from the, from the 90s and, and that's what the application is for me. Sorry, I'm, I'm being, if, that, if, if you fall in any of those categories, uh, I'm just, I'm using humour to some extent. Is that what we need to do? No. Satan hates the church and the call of Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church, is to you keep working for me. You keep going out into the world with my gospel. You're going to expect opposition, but Jesus says, you know what? The gates of hell will not prevail against my church. So our response is not to, to circle the wagons and, and to wait and watch and, and be doing nothing else. It's to be watching and waiting and being active in the mission that Jesus Christ has given us. Satan hates the church, but he's no match for the captain of the church. He's no match for Jesus Christ himself. Satan hates the Jewish people. He hates the church. Now, thirdly, Satan hates you. He hates you. He hates you. Jesus says he comes to steal, to kill and destroy you. He comes to deceive you. He comes to distract you. He comes to destroy you. Each and every one of you. He comes to seduce you through idols like sex and power, compromise. And if he can't do that, he wants to lull you into a, a pleasant sense of complacency. If he can't destroy you, he wants to make you ineffective. He wants to distract you so that you actually achieve nothing in his kingdom and bear no fruit. The New Testament is very clear that Satan hates you. He is powerful, and subtle, and absolutely evil. And the New Testament says your response needs to be, you need to be aware and you need to be on your guard. Listen, for example, to what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Listen to this, if you think I'm overplaying my hand here. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
You may not see them just as it wasn't visible in the book of Esther, but they're there. And Paul warns you that you need to be ready. You need to be on guard. He uses military language deliberately to convey the urgency of the struggle that we're in. It's not flesh and blood. It's the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. They're the ones that you and I are battling against. They're the ones whose hatred for you pours out day by day. So my, my application is don't be surprised when following Jesus is actually difficult. Don't be surprised when there's, there's hardships, when you feel resistance. Don't be surprised when any spiritual duty or discipline you do seems so much harder than something that's not. How easy it is to watch Netflix as opposed to open the Bible. How easy it is to listen to music compared to praying. Every time you step forward, you are in a military context. You're putting on your armor, and armor is to resist the attacks of the evil one. It's not easy. And if you're a Christian leader... If you're someone leading in any sense in the Christian community, well, you expect it should be even harder than that because it will be. Or join a church and be part of a church community where it's not just going to circle the wagons. We're going to do what Jesus tells us and we're going to reach out. We're going to think about planting new churches. We're going to think about putting out new forays into the kingdom of darkness, new ventures. We want to see Satan's kingdom crumble and the gates collapse. You do that and you expect opposition. If you don't, you're full. Because it will come. It comes personally. You know, why is it that in the years that I didn't work in Christian ministry, <laughs> there was so much... Why is it now I work in Christian ministry, I struggle with intense periods of doubt and depression even? Didn't have that before. Why is it that I've become accustomed to every Saturday afternoon before preaching the Word of God, the more the more heavy the weight of God and the news of his gospel is, the bigger that pressure comes on Saturday and the heaviness and the weight. You, you step out for God in any sense. You, you fly the flag in your workplace. You, you take the opportunity to speak to a family member. You say no to the works of Satan in your world in the context in which you find it. You will get pushback. You will face opposition. We know it's true, don't we? We know it's true scripturally. We know it's true in experience. But my question is, why are so many of us so haphazard? And maybe this is a word for you. Why are you so haphazard in coming together with God's people and sitting under his word? Why are you so haphazard about coming together with other Christians to encourage one another during the week? Why are you haphazard in using your resources to fuel the kingdom of God if this is all true, right? And biggest and most indicting, why are you so haphazard in your prayer? Why is it that so many of us, we only really get on our knees and pray when we're desperate, when things are all falling to bits? You know, that when we pray, that is when we really engage in the supernatural struggle of which we're a part. Is our armour up? Is your armour on? Or have you been sucked in, as I'm often tempted to be sucked into this easy, complacent world in which we live here? Evil's out there and it's real. And for us, we need to put on the armour of God and be prepared for the attacks of the evil one. Fourth and last. Satan's beaten. He's defeated. 
Uh, we could come to this point of Esther and go like, this is an equally matched battle between the forces of good and our captain Jesus and the forces of evil and their captain Satan. And how's it going to go? Like, is it like we're watching the last quarter of a, of a footy match and we just don't know? We're, we're screaming at the TV, but we, we can't do anything. Is that what it's like? It's, it's so closely. No, this is not an equal struggle. Satan is powerful and deadly, but he is already beaten. He's not omnipotent. He doesn't have all power. He's a created being, just like you and I. Yes, he's far more powerful than we are, but he's created. He's not uncreated, and he doesn't know the end from the beginning. Only God Almighty knows that. And I love it about this book of Esther, that even we see here in in chapter 3, that Satan is scheming and plotting and planning, and he's putting into effect his, his designs. But God is already on the move to sow discord in those plans, to to bring fruit from them which Satan could never have expected. I find it humorous, isn't it, that at this moment in the very seeming um, triumph of Haman and his master, when he's got his effects in, he's going to carry out genocide, it seems like it's unstoppable, that at that very moment, one of these people he's seeking to destroy is sharing the king's bed. And another one, he owes him his life and has not yet paid the debt. The humorous part of it, you see Satan is, is scheming and plotting, but it's an, it's an equal contest. Satan's playing blind man's buff, have you ever played that? Or pin the tail on the dog? He's got no idea where he's going. And God's standing over Satan, as if you like, with the sword of justice drawn, ready to strike and laughing at him. Come on, play your little game. Let's see where it gets you. Uh, I love, um, we see this in the New Testament with the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, I don't know if you've seen Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. I don't know if I'd recommend it actually. Some of you have, it's it's graphic. If you haven't seen that movie, you'll see that Mel Gibson portrays the devil as this hooded figure overshadowing everything that happens in those days leading to the crucifixion of Jesus. I, I think that's an accurate representation. Yet listen to how the early church prayed about the crucifixion. Listen to Acts chapter 4. This is what they prayed, right? Listen to this, verse 28. Sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything is in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Hear those last words? All of these figures acting under demonic influence in the end will only do what your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The Gentiles, the pride and cruelty of the Roman Empire, the jealousy of the Jewish leaders, the fickle passions of the mob, the twisted mind of Herod. As that comes to that point in history of the crucifixion of Jesus, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. See what this means? It was not in spite of the greatest injustice and the most concerted evil 
that God did his saving work in the crucifixion of Jesus. It wasn't in spite of it. It was through it. What you had predestined would take place. God works concurrently in ways that Satan cannot understand. I'd hate to have Satan's job because everything that he does, his great victories and plans in the end will become to nothing. All right, so as we finish up, let's remember that Satan hates the Jewish people. He hates the church. He hates you. But let's remember that he's defeated. That he is overmatched. It was in this confidence that the early church prayed for bold prayers, courageous prayers, because they knew that Satan was chained and that the Lord Jesus has his hand wrapped around that chain. He can only go so far, and one day very soon, they knew and we know that the Lord Jesus is going to pull that chain for the final time. And he's going to lead that dog to the place where he belongs. Hallelujah, bring it on. And we can have that same confidence now. As, it, as Esther chapter 3 closes, it looks really bad. Haman's plan seems unstoppable, irreversible. Everything's stacked in his favour. He now wills total power. And his plan for the annihilation of God's people, the Jewish people, seems like nothing can derail it. But it's not the end of this story. Oh no, it's not the end. You have to come next week to see now how the hand of God begins to work so beautifully and powerfully in Esther chapter 4. But I hope you're encouraged as you see this. Even though it's heavy, you see these things. The, the nations, the devil can rage and roar against God's people. God will triumph in Jesus Christ, his son. So I'm going to pray. Band, come up and let's, let's come to God. Uh, Father, this is heavy. We, we ask, Lord, that firstly you would forgive us for our complacency. You'd forgive us when we pretend that this is not true and that what really matters is our barbecues and our social interactions and our Facebook feeds and, and these things. Lord, would you forgive us when we give head knowledge and assent to the reality of the fight in which we're in, but we live lives that be betray that truth? Would you forgive us? Uh, Lord Jesus Christ, you were patient with your disciples when they slept on the night of your greatest struggle against the evil one. Oh Lord Jesus, be patient with us. Be patient with your church. And Lord, we pray, give us that same boldness as the church in Acts chapter 4. Give us the boldness to, to not deny the reality of the evil one, but to step forward in confidence and faith, knowing that your will will triumph. And Father, we also pray that you would give us wisdom as we live in a world where anti-Semitism is real and vicious. Lord, we pray that you would help us to, to navigate the complexities of the war in Gaza and other places, looking to you, Lord Jesus, but never participating in anti-Semitism in any way. May we as a church here in Geelong, may we love the people, the Jewish people, and Lord, may we have wisdom as we, as we walk that journey, looking forward and praying for them and the time that they will come to know you in full. We look forward to that day, Lord Jesus, and in the meantime, we pray that we would stand with the full armour of God, 
facing all the schemes of the devil and triumphing in the name of Jesus Christ, our captain and our king, in whose name we pray. Amen.